This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. A co-production of WNYC Studios and the New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Our contributor, Eliza Griswold, has been reporting from Pennsylvania on the political trends affecting the midterms. There's the Senate race between Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, and a lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, who suffered a stroke this year that's impacted his campaign, particularly after he struggled in a recent debate. But there's also something else going on in Pennsylvania, an energized movement of Christian nationalists aiming for power in state government. Those nationalists see God, not the will of voters, as the source of authority in government. Our writer Eliza Griswold says the movement is truly significant at the state level, where it can put far-right candidates into the legislature. Eliza, this is not your old-school Christian right that we used to talk about, the era of Billy Graham and Jerry Falwell, is it? Not at all, David. This is something really different. This isn't about injecting you know, Christian values into society. This is about overthrowing secular democracy. In, in what sense? In the sense that what we see is people who believe that a God-ordained government requires that they take over the institutions of democracy. It's actually a kind of thinking called dominionism that's growing very popular in some circles in Christianity. So how is that influencing the races in Pennsylvania? Well, let me take you back to an event that happened in early July. Any free men and women in the house? This took place in the rotunda of the state capitol building, which is a beautiful building that nobody ever goes to in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What a great day. Thank you. And Doug Mastriano, who is the Republican candidate for governor, he was a headliner to this. And what did he have to say? What, What were the ideas that he was espousing? So this is a press conference that marked in Pennsylvania the Charter Day, which nominally it's a day that recognizes the anniversary of King Charles II granting William Penn the land, essentially, that is now Pennsylvania, which he did in 1681. Now, William Penn did that. He he came to America because he needed religious freedom. And that's the idea, really, that Mastriano has seized on. William Penn had a dream given to him by God of a place that we know later on as Pennsylvania, where men and women can live as they see fit and not as any king or magistrate or governor saw fit. Mastriano and many other members of the Christian nationalist movement use William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, as a kind of model and precursor for their imagined recapturing of history. Having suffered so much for his faith and being castigated for being a Christian, and condemned in the media and judged by those people who think they're so self-righteous and better than others, that they can stand in judgment of others. What Mastriano means is freedom 
is freedom for a tiny minority. He doesn't mean when he talks about persecution or or persecution by the media or religious freedom, he isn't talking about diverse freedoms. He's talking about freedom for Christians like him. No, Eliza, my understanding of the politics of, of the midterm elections revolves around inflation, around uh, basic economic issues, around crime, around uh, whether you like Joe Biden or not, or whether you think he's too old to, to be president, and all kinds of what's usually called kitchen table issues. This is something quite different. Is it really an animating part of the governor's race in Pennsylvania? It is an animating factor because it fuels, in Pennsylvania, what's happened, as has happened elsewhere, is that it fuels the idea of basically stop the steal. The idea that God gave this Christian nation it also gives people the obligation to overthrow what they say is illegitimate governments. And that's really how these two movements have fused between Christian nationalists who claim the moral authority of God and election deniers who are looking for a base who will support them in their claims that 2020 was fraudulent and we have to massively change voting for the future. Another person who spoke at that event along those lines is a woman named Abby Abildness. Can you tell us who she is? So Abby Abildness calls herself an apostle in this movement to literally capture state legislatures and bring America back to an imagined past when it was a Christian nation. She has risen to prominence as a leader of these Jericho marches, which really sprang up in the wake and got powerful in the wake of the 2020 election and in many ways became a precursor to what we saw on January 6th. Okay, we're in the middle of the Jericho march going around. We just did the first two times around. And the idea at the core of them is that the state capital, the secular government, the seat of secular government is evil as evil as the city of Jericho was in the Bible. And these guys are calling on God to knock down the seat of secular government so that they can, inspired by God, come in and take it over by walking seven times around the Capitol. March around seven times, and you will see me bring it down. God will bring it down. Abby Abilness really brings together a lot of these different elements, right? Because on one hand, she is, you know, an apostle in this movement we've been talking about. On the other, she helps lead the Biblical Prayer Caucus in Pennsylvania. These prayer caucuses are across the country. They are the way that over the, the past decade, we have seen the far right take over state legislatures by infusing these different kinds of biblical bills like, well, gay people can't adopt children, right? Um, constitutional bans on abortion. That's really associated with this group. And it's growing and it's powerful. And it is a way that the old school Christian right has become something very new and far more muscular. You know, we hear the term Christian nationalist all the time. And as someone who's been reporting on this movement, tell me what the term means to you and also how many people identify truly as Christian nationalists in this country? So, 
what the term means, anybody, most of the people who espouse these ideas, most of the people who believe in these ideas don't like that term at all. They reject it as like a liberal construct. Mastriano asked me, is this a term you fabricated? So how it's different from the old school Christian right is this idea that Christians of course, America's a Christian nation. Now, that's something, according to a recent study, 45% of Americans believe, which is alarming enough, right? But then you take that idea. It's not just that America is a Christian nation. Christians are duty-bound to take over the instruments of government and society, and that really is different. Now, how popular is it? That's a harder question to answer. The truth is a lot of this is rooted in Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues, This is the fastest growing religion in the world, right? It's highly decentralized. It doesn't have numbers attached. And people claim their own authority, right? These Mm -hmm. people are prophets and apostles who say that God has told them to do certain things. And that is really new. And that is pretty concerning. I can't help asking the decisive race in these midterm elections may be the Senate race in the state of Pennsylvania. Some months ago, we would have thought that Mehmet Oz just didn't have a chance. I mean, he was being described um, quite roundly in Pennsylvania as somebody who doesn't live in the state, as someone who is improvising all the time in terms of policy in the worst possible sense, and just somebody destined to lose Fetterman. But then things changed. He had a stroke, and and the recovery process has been very complicated. And that culminated in what I have to think was a problematic at best and possibly disastrous debate with Oz. Um, So where is that race now? Good question. So that race is too close to call and and will be for some time. John Fetterman, who is 6'8", right, like in shorts, in snow, like he's a early Democrat, right, which we may see as the future of the party. Like, maybe that's helpful when we talk about, like, left populism, right? There is something very human about his hesitations now, which I myself experienced with him when I interviewed him, which we had to do with closed captioning, right? Like, he couldn't do that in person. Um, Mm -hmm. And we make all kinds of allowances for people. So just to say that. But at the same time, The people who he's going for, the disaffected white working class who went for Trump and peeling them off the Republican Party, which is one of the places he's been so successful, these are not a lot of guys who are looking for empathy and talk about ableism, you know? So the question is, can he hold them if he doesn't look competent? Mm -hmm. What has been the course of the numbers in the last couple of months? The margin has just gone down and down, right? He was leading with a super comfortable margin. Oz exactly looked like a joke, especially. And Fetterman was so good with that. Like, you would drive around, you'd see signs. On lawns, you'd see signs for Fetterman and Mastriano, right? Those days are behind us. And it's hard to know, is that is that because of his health? Is that because races always tighten, right? It's unclear. And Republicans, I've, I've talked to several this week who are actually gleeful, you know, and also feel generous enough to say, well, I hope the guy's okay. But you can see that they think they scored a major point and we'll have to see how that plays out. Eliza, thank you so much. David, thank you. 
You can read Eliza Griswold's reporting on the Pennsylvania election campaign and much more at newyorker.com. In a moment, we'll look more deeply at Christian nationalism with the theologian Russell Moore. That's all ahead today on the New Yorker Radio Hour. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hi, it's David Remnick. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Russell Moore is a leading thinker in the evangelical Christian movement. And until recently, he held a key position in the Southern Baptist Convention. But Reverend Moore left the SBC last year after taking a firm stance opposing racism in the church and criticizing its response to sexual abuse allegations. Now, although he's not a progressive or a liberal in our understanding, Moore has repeatedly denounced the politics of Christian nationalism, which we were speaking about earlier in this program. In one of his recent editorials, He referred to Christian nationalism as liberation theology for white people. Russell Moore is the editor of Christianity Today. Now, I'd like to really begin by asking you about the church that you grew up in in Mississippi, Woolmarket Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that church that you were raised in. Well, that that church was the center of my identity because I was there all the time. It was the rhythm of the week. It was the rhythm of uh, of the year, and it was a really strong community. And I was able to see the best of what Christian community actually can be, along with some of the uh, some of the darker things that I saw as well. Um, and part of that was I had a grandmother um, who was the widow of uh, my grandfather who had been pastor of the church before I was born. And uh, she would make sure that I was there constantly, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But we would never go on the first Wednesday of every month, which was congregational business meeting. 
And I just assumed you just didn't go to that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was grown that I said, well, why did we never go for a business meeting? And she said, well, I didn't want you to see that. I wanted you to I wanted you to be a Christian. <laughs> so uh, she protected me from some of the wilder aspects. You mentioned the darker side of things. What do you mean? Well, I had a, a spiritual crisis as a 15-year-old, not because of my church, but because of the Bible Belt uh, generally, uh, looking around and seeing some high-profile uh, TV evangelist scandals that were going on. It was more this sense of, uh, seeing the way that religion could be used in order to fleece people. Along with persistent uh, racism, uh, I, I couldn't understand how Bible Belt Christianity couldn't recognize something that is very explicit uh, throughout the New Testament. And then to see the way that politics was using the religion. And so I started to wonder, is this all just a means to an end? Is this all just politics or uh, just uh, racism or whatever, some form of social control? And then you add to it, of course, uh, there was uh, a, a great deal of Bible prophecy speculation at the time. For instance, uh, we're, we're right on the brink of the second coming, which is similar uh, in many ways to the things that we're seeing now with uh, QAnon and other conspiracy theories. They're, they're really a secularized uh, version of the worst forms of that. Why did you pursue a life in the church rather than go in another direction? Well, because I, I became convinced that uh, Jesus of Nazareth did, in fact, um, did, was in fact raised from the dead. Um, and did establish a church. And, and the other thing is, being as familiar with the Bible as I was, it was, hard to, uh, it was hard to have the kind of idealized picture of the church that could lead to existential disappointment. I mean, so, so the, the New Testament— <laughs> did you know that you were—it's you were, it, a tough bargain. In other words, it, it seems that you knew that you were headed for a life of uh, opposition and difficulty— um, I, I don't know that I knew that. Um, I think my father knew that. Uh, my father was a, a pastor's kid. And when I uh, told him later on that I, I thought I was being called into ministry, he was not happy. And, and he said, I'll support you. Hmm. I'll never bring it up again. And he didn't. Uh, but he said, but I wish you wouldn't do it. Because he thought what was going to happen. Because he had seen his own father, I mean, growing up in a parsonage right next door to a church, he had seen the sorts of, um, the, the sorts of uh, backroom politics and, and those sorts of things up close, and he didn't want to see that happen to me. So evangelical Christians, as we know, have been active in politics for a long time. How have mm -hmm. things changed since the era you grew up in with Jerry Falwell Sr. and Pat Robertson, the moral majority, and so on? How have things shifted to where we are today? Well, in, in one sense, if you just think about the language of, of moral majority, there, there was a, a sense in the 1980s and the 1990s that um, that evangelical Christianity, if not theologically, then certainly uh, morally, really represented the country. Uh, so things that were going on in the country that were seen to be uh, decline, uh, moral decline, uh, were 
being imposed on the country. That's not where most people were. And so the, the way that you countered that was by mobilizing regular Americans, real uh, Americans. I think what's happened since then is right now there's a kind of contradictory uh, set of uh, impulses that will retain some of that. Uh, we are the real America and elites are the problem. Uh, those who are in power uh, culturally, politically uh, in the country. Um, and this sense of being a beleaguered minority. Um, and, and so there's, a, there's an existential threat uh, coming. So you, you put both of those things together. One is the real America, that the, the nation's a Christian nation. Um, most people uh, are a people who agree with uh, you. Um, and yet you're attacked and marginalized, that then becomes this sense of it's, it's a unique form of threat that's experienced by some. You, you wrote something very interesting. Before you left the Southern Baptist Convention, you wrote an internal memo, which was eventually leaked. Mm-hmm. You referred to what you called the perennial temptation toward political captivity of the gospel. Yeah. What were you thinking? What, what does that mean? Well, I think that there is there are always going to be uh, opportunists or strongmen who are going to want to take religion and use it to make whatever position they have uh, seem transcendent. I think that's as old as uh, Pharaoh with the Egyptian uh, gods. Uh, it's what we see now with European uh, blood and soil ethno-nationalist uh, movements wanting to use Christianity, which what they mean by Christianity is um, being French or being German or being Dutch, not being whatever the the uh, outsider is deemed to be. Uh, and you see it, it, you see it in the United States of America. We hear a lot about Christian nationalism now. In your view, what is Christian nationalism, and does it bear any resemblance to what we used to call evangelical politics in you know the, in the period that you were growing up in the eighties and nineties? No, this is a different thing, and that's and that's kind of one of the problems uh, with there. There are secular people who have uh, really see every engagement by evangelical Christians in the civic arena as being. Uh, theocracy uh, and so mm-hmm. forth. And so they're, they're, they're often not able to tell the difference between uh, that and genuine, uh, genuine theocracy or genuine uh, Christian nationalism. And what Christian nationalism is, uh, in my view, is the use of, of Christian doctrines or symbols uh, for the uh, maintenance of an ethnic or a national identity. Uh, and, and, that, and and it's anti-democratic by it's, nature, isn't it's it? It's anti-democratic by nature, yes. And racism, I'm afraid, seems to be a deep component of this. You've been very clear in your view that racism is a sin. It violates your faith, and you feel a duty to fight it. But many in the Southern Baptist Convention and at many other churches apparently don't share your view. Tell me about that. There, there are very few people who will say, I'm for racism I'm uh, against uh, racial harmony. But they're defining it not just personally, they're defining it uh, emotively. And so I'm, I'm not for people uh, actively hating each other because of the color of their skin. 
When you start talking about, though, uh, the actual implications of that, then that becomes uh, often labeled as Marxism or um, a c- critical race theory mm-hmm. or, or something along those lines. So there are uh, many of us who would be uh, facing often charges of critical race theory who are as far away from any sort of critical theory as as possible. Um, That sin and injustice, it's not just a problem for the people it hurts. It also is a problem Mm -hmm. for the people who are captive to it. And so um, standing against racism is, in my view, not only good for the people racists oppress, but for the racists themselves. Uh, This is no way to to live. This year, an independent investigation of sexual abuse in the church outlined how leadership refused to address very extensive allegations of sexual abuse. How has this affected Southern Baptist churches? I think there were some of us, and I would be one of them, surprised by how that played out because I would have predicted that there would be some apathy Um, and and the kind of apathy I I typically would find would be from people who would say, well, that's a horrible thing, but it doesn't happen with us. And that's something that happens uh, in in the Roman Catholic Church Mm -hmm. or or somewhere else, but it it can't happen with us. Or even the people who would say, well, it could happen somewhere, but it couldn't happen in my church because we know each other and we trust each other. And when the um, independent third party report came out, uh, and I was was expecting – you know, having dealt with this uh, for so long and been stonewalled and and everything else with this, I expected that I would be the least surprised person in the world by what the report uh, detailed. And I was mouth open shocked by hmm. how bad it was. Now, Reverend, you've written about how men and women have different roles, different responsibilities in society. And that belief is known as complementarianism. Do you think that these traditional gender roles may have enabled some of the predatory behavior by men in power in the church? Uh, I think so. The scripture speaks of men and women mostly in terms of how we are the same uh, as as human beings. There, there are references to our differences. But when there's an exaggeration of the distinction, uh, then that can be used in all sorts of uh, twisted ways. And I think that was the case. Uh, simply because of uh, how few women were in the room um, where decisions were being made. So it's a systemic problem that sexual abuse kind of grows out of a systemic problem is what you're saying. Yeah. It's and not I, just the failing of some targeted no, it's individuals. Not, not, not just a failing of some, some individuals. It, it comes with both this sense of um, the less than uh, status of women or of, or, or of the vulnerable, and then you add to it uh, institutional self-protection, and that then becomes a, a system that's very, very difficult to, uh, to overcome. Forgive me, but in your case, it makes me wonder why you don't, considering what you've been saying, drift toward a more, for want of a better word, liberal church. Because I'm not a liberal. <laughs> I I uh, I actually uh, 
believe uh, what uh, what the Bible teaches. I actually believe the historic uh, Christian faith. Um, I was I was on a campus, a very secular campus, um, last year, and an atheist student was asking me theological questions, mm-hmm. and at the end of it, said, "So wait a minute, you're a real deal Bible thumping, <laughs> hellfire and brimstone sort yeah. of fundamentalist?" And I said, "Yes, I feel very seen <laughs> right now. That's, exa- <laughs> that's exactly what I am." Well. An enormous weight today is put by conservatives on culture war issues, gay marriage, yeah. medical treatment for trans kids, um, all kinds of things. And it's said that these are symptoms of a vast moral crisis brought on by the left. You agree with that? Well, I think that there are things that are symptoms of a, uh, of a moral crisis. I'm not sure that they're brought on only by the left. I think that moral depravity is not sorted uh, by a political constituency, but is present in every person and all people. So I'm not sure how to assign blame for that. I do think there are things that are moral crises, and I do think that there are ways that Christians and others need to be speaking into those things. But I think that often what happens is that there is a, a reordering of priorities where the theology becomes the second step from the politics rather than the politics uh, being an implication of the theology. And that's where I think things become very dangerous. And Christianity becomes the the tool that you use to get to them, then it becomes something other than Christianity. Reverend Moore, I can't help but ask, when you go speak on a secular campus, mm-hmm. or when you talk with public radio uh, or the secular press or the New Yorker magazine or what, what, what have you, mm-hmm. do you feel like as if you are being, as you said, seen before, heard properly, understood? I do think that there's a segment of secular America that doesn't understand what it is to be motivated religiously and who then thinks merely in uh, cultural political terms. I, I told a, a journalist one time, you seem to think that evangelicals are just like cicadas that go into dormancy between Iowa caucuses. And <laughs> it's, it's much more complicated uh, than that. And, and I, think that's, I think it's sometimes hard for some secular people to see that. And I think it's also hard for some of my own religious people to see how they can secularize uh, in ways that aren't NPR mimosa drinking uh, uh, <laughs> Sunday brunches, but can be a very uh, a very secularized um, form of uh, Christian nationalism. And you have to come in and say, you've actually secularized. How would Jesus Christ, in your view, have reacted to American Christian nationalism? I, I think it would be very dangerous uh, to put words in Jesus's mouth there without uh, actually becoming what I'm trying to <laughs> oppose here. What I would say is you have Jesus who was uh, who always refused to uh, to have his gospel used as a means to an end because he had a and has a much bigger, a uh, bigger view of what's important and and what the gospel actually is. And so people who settle for Christianity or any other religion as politics 
are really making a pitiful deal and settling for far too little. Reverend Moore, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Russell Moore is the editor of Christianity Today. I'm David Remnick, and this is the New Yorker Radio Hour. One last thing before we go. The actor Jennifer Lewis was on the show recently, and she had some very good advice that we should all remember this week. I don't care who you are or where you work. Get your ass out and vote. This ain't the election to sit home and lurk. Get your ass out and vote. Get your ass Do what the lady says, okay? This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Toon Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Emily Botin, Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Putubwele. Along with Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, Jenny Lawton, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more.